Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast. Together as a Live Inspired community, we can change the world. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. I got a question for you. Here we go. What were you doing 2,871 days ago? Come on, first answer wins. Let's go. 2,871 days ago. What were you up to? Where were you living? Who were you with? What were you working on? What turned you on? What turned you off? Who was in office? What were you doing? That is almost eight years ago. Life was dramatically different for us. We had two less kids. We lived in a different house. I still was in part working in a different career. So for me, John O'Leary, life has dramatically changed in eight years. Can you imagine, though, spending eight of your years as a POW? Can you imagine spending that time away from loved ones, away from family? Can you imagine being the sixth person taken as a POW in the Vietnam War, taken away from your wife, taken away from your two children, taken away from a woman that you know is expecting your third child, having no idea during those eight years, will you ever see her again? Will you return to her? What is becoming of my children? What is happening to me and the guys that I serve with as we are being tortured? And yet, even after those eight years, to come back, to be restored, to be renewed, and to choose not only to forgive, which is an unbelievable story, but to truly live and truly thrive again. My friends, today with us on our podcast is a true hero. His name is Colonel Smitty Harris. He is one of the most remarkable guys I've ever read about, ever interviewed. You're going to love him. And as you listen to this love story, you're going to find a guy who not only loves his country and his life and his wife, but also a guy who is married to a woman who is his peer. She is his equal as far as what real heroism looks like. Her name is Louise. Louise and Smitty have been together for just you know 60 years, so they're starting to figure things out. Eight of those they spent apart, but the love story of what they were doing separately during that time in order that they may come back together, will turn you on to endure the adversity you face today, to move toward the goals that you have today, and to recognize that the best of your journey, in spite of where you are, is in front of you. 
My friends, this is a love story. You are going to savor it. You're going to love it. So I invite you right now, turn the radio up, grab a friend, grab an open heart, grab a journal, uh, get ready to take some notes as you get introduced to two great individuals. Their names are Smitty and Louise Harris. Smitty and Louise, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, thank you, John. My friend, I got to let you know, I, I have the honor of reading an awful lot of books in my current job. I read to grow and to learn and to expand and to remain in love with life. I can't remember a book that I've been as moved as I was when I read your book. I want to thank you for the tap code. I want to thank you for living it. And I want to thank you for making time for us today. Well, you're very welcome, John. It's been a long time coming. We were re- released from POW land uh, 46 years ago. <laughs> well, 46 years of the making. And uh, sometimes you got to take a, lo- a long time for things to grow and expand properly. I think four and a half decades is more than enough time for this. So let's just dive right into the story. At what age were you when you realized that you wanted to serve your country in the armed forces? Growing up, I wanted to be a pilot. I hung around the local airport. I had to drive 10 miles on my bike to get there and got a couple of rides there just because I was washing airplanes and helping them. And my whole life as a teenager, I built and flew U-Control airplanes Mm -hmm. model. At the age of 12 or so, I put together a scrapbook of airplanes. I took a few airplane magazines and cut them out and categorized them. So uh, I guess it was just imbued in me from being raised in a conservative family and everyone just was expected to serve if asked. You served, my friend, in mighty ways. And as I read your book, I assumed Captain Charlie Plum is a friend of mine. I love Charlie Plum. I assumed I would make you a friend of mine in the same way, but I I made two friends. There was a woman named Louise who shows up in this book. Tell our listeners who Louise is. Louise is my lovely wife of almost 60 years. And we have had a wonderful life, three children, and they've all grown up to be very nice people and they're all successful in their endeavors. And we have seven grandchildren and four great-grandchildren. We are truly blessed. What was it about this beautiful girl 60-plus years ago that you fell head over heels for? Well, I was 30, and she was 21. I was kind of a confirmed bachelor. (laughs) (laughs) And I was having too much fun, really. She just was different from any young woman I'd ever been around. Yes. She was more mature. Oh, she was bright. She made me laugh. <laughs> I didn't know she was only 21 years old, or I probably would not have dated her. Yeah, you would have. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, uh, we got married and have just, it's the best thing I ever did. Hmm. The love story plays out in that book. And I even hear beautiful Louise's voice in the background. And I hope she continues to chirp in as she'd like. I'm curious, deployment. That's a moment in time that you've signed up for. Like this is what you hope happens in some regards. But Louise is along for the ride. How, How did she feel about you being deployed? She made up her mind that she was going to be the best Air Force officer's wife there ever was. 
<laughs> and so she really made a, a real effort to know all the etiquette and do everything. And she was willing. She knew I was a fighter pilot. And that means I was a risk taker. But she went along with that because we had such a wonderful relationship. Mm. During that dating and then marriage and then deployment state, did you talk about the possibility of you being shot down or being killed or captured? No. <laughs> uh, fighter pilots are also optimists. So <laughs> I never even considered that, although, you know, I'm a realist. I, I knew that was a possibility and that I, there would be some people shooting at me from time to time. But I just thought I would get through it. And, and if I didn't, I would make the best of whatever situation I ended up in. Well, on April 4th, 1965, both of your lives are about to radically change. You, you drop a round of bombs. I believe it's on a bridge. Circle back to see if they hit the target. And as you're doing that, you experience a jolt. I'll let you in your own words describe what happens because I have a feeling it's going to be a lot better than anything I could say right now. Okay, I was the first airplane in on the target that day. There were probably 20 F-105s behind me, but they wanted to see my bomb burst at the bridge because the, the winds down there, it was in a valley between bridges. Uh, the wind was un, really unknown, so they wanted to see the impact of my bombs so they could offset their aim points a little to make up for that. It was a perfect run for me. I peeled in it from about 17,000 feet, I think. And on a 45-degree angle bomb run, uh, I had to put all the switches in the proper positions, get the right aim point, And I was just very, very busy mm -hmm. doing things getting the right airspeed and the right release altitude that I knew the flak was coming up like mad. It was all around me, and I knew it, but I was just unconcerned because I didn't have time to think about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you're about to have an awful lot of time to think about it. You, you get hit. You realize the only way out is to jump out, is to parachute. As you deploy and as you are slowly making your way to the ground, what are you thinking about? as flak continues to come up, as people are shooting at you, as you parachute down toward the enemy? Well, uh, I was directly over a large Vietnamese village, unfortunately. I was looking for some place that I could help guide my chute where there would be some cover and I would have some opportunity for escape or evasion. But nothing, this <laughs> large village and rice paddies in every direction. There was no cover, nothing. And I was able to pull the risers of my chute. I was at a fairly low altitude, probably to over 1,500 feet. And I landed just outside the village. Hmm. I was so close to the bridge that I had been bombing that hmm. ensuing airplanes were coming in and... Uh, we could hear their bombs going off and also their anti-aircraft guns. So the people in the village, they were looking up to see if they weren't hiding. They were looking up to see what the action was. And here they see this big white chute hmm. coming down. So I was uh, met immediately upon touching down on the ground. Talk about those first moments on the ground as you are met immediately. 
the villagers, the men, two or three of them had some kind of rifles. The others had uh, sticks and hoes. They approached me very cautiously at first, and I would kind of look around, and they would shrink down as if my vision uh, right. uh, and that they were uh, afraid of me, too. <laughs> I did have a thirty-eight revolver, and I stayed in its uh, shoulder holster because there was just no chance for me to overcome these odds. And so, so a few brave ones came in and knocked me to the ground and uh, proceeded to take off all my flight gear, boots, and everything down to my shorts. There was one young man who was kind of the leader and obviously very emotional, and he was kind of the leader of some others. And as I was pushed towards the village, uh, they pushed my back up against a broken-down brick wall that had been a building. Mm. And this young man put his finger on my forehead with three of his buddies with rifles about 12 or 15 feet away. But there was a lot of talk and older men milled in, and really the voices got quite angry and emotional. But the North Vietnamese had been told to capture American pilots alive because we were more valuable to the government. So my life was saved. At that moment, when I was up against the wall, I remember starting to say, and our father, I also wanted to stand up straight and tall and look uh, like a military officer should, and that's hard to do in one skills. (laughs) I cannot imagine, and it begins for you a journey that will require 2,871 more days of your life in captivity. On day one, if I had told you as you are being marched over to confinement that it would require the next eight years of your life, could you have taken the next step forward and the next and the next? I would have to, and I would always try to follow the code of conduct, and I would try to escape if the opportunity presented itself. You're the sixth POW taken, capture. Your pregnant wife, your two daughters, they are, are they in Japan at the time? Is that right? Yes, we owned a home on Okinawa and had our car, and we were very, very happy there. It was a beautiful site where we, our home was overlooking the water and very nice. You write about it, but I'll let you talk about it. How did Louise find out that you'd been shot down? Well, it was quite by accident. I had been there a couple or maybe three months, I'm not sure, in solitary confinement, had lots of interrogations, but they pulled four of us out of solitary confinement and put us in a cell together. We were overjoyed, and they let us write a letter home. Mm. It turned out that that letter was taken to some meeting that they had convened with foreign diplomats proving to the foreign diplomats that they were uh, letting us uh, write letters in accordance with the Geneva Agreement. Well, as it turned out, a British diplomat, a female, uh, picked up one of the letters and put it in her purse as she was leaving. And Hmm. that letter finally got to Louise (laughs) in August, Hmm. a couple of months later. Uh, I guess she took it on her trips wherever she was going and back to England and 
mailed it, and it finally got to the States and to Louise, and that was the first proof that she had that I was uh, I captured and it was a POW. I'm sure that's a, almost a mixed blessing when you realize that your husband's captive, that he is uh, going through all kinds of ordeals that you can't even fathom. You're going to learn a lot more about during this podcast and during your marriage together. What was the original reaction when she opened up this letter and she realized, oh my gosh, this is my husband's handwriting. That That's his name at the bottom right. I'm going to let her say that, answer that. Louise, I'm, I'm, hey, welcome on. And, and uh, folks listening right Thank now, you. this is the beautiful Louise Harris. Louise, welcome to Live Inspired, and I'm glad you're with us. You're very kind. It, I was so excited, and the postmaster here called and said, Miss Harris, I think I have a letter from your husband. Meet me at the back on the back steps of the post office. And so I raced down there, and he gave me the letter. And of course, I recognized Smitty's handwriting immediately, and I was elated. So it was total joy. I had always believed Smitty was alive, but to have it confirmed was just the most exciting moment. And I let his family know and my family know and and then I let the Pentagon know, but <laughs> that in my hand was just our children were thrilled. We laughed and cried and jumped up and down together. <laughs> I think the part that maybe moved me the most was this idea, not only of this beautiful young lady getting the letter, knowing that her husband's alive, but these three little ones. Talk about the reaction from your kids. What was it like as um, they knew daddy was, was alive and well? In the middle of the floor with them all just cuddled up against me and we we just read it and reread it <laughs> and just laughed and cried and hugged each other. And they were so excited because all along I told them that daddy's airplane was broken, but that he would come home. Mm. And he, you know, it was kind of solidified that to them. Daddy really was alive. And they believed me and they wanted to believe me. Right. But this confirmed it to them. So we were we were thrilled. Where is so, the letter today? Uh, we have it here. <laughs> and it'll always be with us. It is a beautiful piece that remains yours always. And, and Louise, since you are, you're speaking, I'd love to keep you moving forward with us. The journey forward without a husband next to you was not easy. The Air Force wasn't ready for this. The Armed Forces weren't ready to support you in the way that they needed. What were some of the challenges that you were facing as a single mother of three little ones back then? Well, my main thing was to support the children, to let them know things were going to be all right, and to keep them focused on being children and being happy children. That was our goal. Smitty's in my goal. Pay. Always. They denied me my pay when I got back to the States. So I had to get that straightened out. And then when the house that I'd lived in next door to my sister, the people wanted to sell it. And I said, well, I'll buy it and I'll get a VA loan. Well, they said, you can't have a VA loan without your husband's signature. I thought, I think I can. <laughs> so I just had challenges to meet. But my grandmother had told me years before, Never yell low, always go to the top person. And that became my mantra. So <laughs> I'm a cheeky lady. So uh, I would just go right to the top and say, I need help. And and people responded to that. And when you say the top, we're, we're not just talking about the bank general manager. I mean, you are going to no. the top upper echelons of government. Well, I went to the secretary of the Air Force when they told me I couldn't have his pay. <laughs> right. And uh, I gave him an ultimatum. And then 
when the VA told me I couldn't have a loan, I called Senator John Stennis, who was the head of the Senate Armed Forces Committee then, and I said, sir, I need help. And he said, well, now we'll get it for you. And we did. The next day, the head of the VA was knocking on my door. And if you ask people politely, when my car that I'd ordered in Okinawa went to the wrong port, mm. I just called the head of the General Motors and told him <laughs> that's my problem. And I called him collect. So, you know, you just learn how to Louise, there there are a lot of people looking for great employees and leaders right now. Are, are you looking for a new job? I have a feeling some of our listeners are going to be interviewing you soon for a high-level position within their organization. Well, Smith Harris is my job one, <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> when you read a book like the one your husband composed, you're imagining, I'm imagining that it's going to be a military book about military heroes. And very clearly, very early in, one of the heroes reveals herself. And Louise, it is you. You you are a masterful leader through an incredibly difficult time. Well, as the old saying goes, you do what you have to do. And that's what I did. I knew I had to take care of my children because that was my job. Smitty was doing his and I just did mine. So I've, I've been very blessed. Smitty, coming back to you for a moment, the period of confinement, almost eight years. Talk about the Hilton that you stayed in. You write about it in great detail, but I'll let you unpack what it was like and why it was different than any other camp that you stayed in. Well, the Hanoi Hilton was a large complex. It had been built by the French probably in the 1800s when they controlled all of Indochina. And it was, of course, antiquated. There was mold. It was an old, old prison. And uh, there were various parts of it. It was quite large. And if you were in one part, you might not even know that there were American POWs in some other part of that prison. But as our numbers grew and their ability to keep us uh, in solitary confinement or in twos, the prison became inadequate for that. So they opened up a number of other holding places, prisons, mostly within a 35-mile radius of, of Hanoi. The last prison I was held in was one up on near the Chinese border, very isolated, no running water and no electricity. I was held in a number of prisons, but nearly every POW spent some time, particularly initially, in the Hanoi Hilton. Talk more about what the living conditions were like. Well, they were similar almost everywhere we were held. Uh, We were in small cells, usually two-man cells, about seven by seven feet were the dimensions. And most of that was taken up by two concrete slabs that we used for beds on each side. The only other thing in there was a bucket that we could use, which we got to empty about every day or so. Mm. Most of them were dark. They had, some of them had transoms uh, of high with bars in them that they hoped you wouldn't be able to see out of. We found ways to do that. A heavy, heavy wooden door with about a seven by 10 hole at eye level, uh, which could be opened from the outside and had some bars in it. That was uh, about the extent of it. Uh, We were permitted it to go someplace outside those cells, sometimes 
once every couple of days, sometimes it was a week or so, to bathe for a few minutes. And by that, I mean pouring yes. a bowl of water over ourselves and had a little soap and another bowl to wash the soap off. The food was uh, mostly rice in some places. A small loaf of French bread was the usual. And usually they had a bowl, a side dish with some uh, watery soup. They called it soup <laughs> or some vegetable that we couldn't even recognize. All of us lost about 20% of, of our normal weight. And we were pretty trim and slim as fighter pilots and in good shape. But we would lose almost 20% of our weight within the first six or eight months of captivity. So many, how were you treated by your captors and the interrogators? How, how would they treat you personally? They would get very, very angry with me when I, when I refused to answer their questions. At the very first, they didn't use extreme torture as they did later on, but they would come around and belt me in the head so hard it would knock me flat on the floor and threaten me with everything, including death. But most of those interrogation sessions didn't last very long because the interrogators were intent on either trying to indoctrinate us or just to practice their English hmm. because they told us the long history of North Vietnam and how great the country and the government was and how everything was wrong with the United States and our government and particularly the criminal air pirates, which is what they called us. It was uh, very stressful. As time went on, they wanted us, our military information that they were asking at first, the targets and capabilities and so on. Uh, they no longer asked that after several months because they knew it was no good anymore. We, even if we gave them the right answer, it wouldn't be right. Those sessions were strictly trying to exploit us. And to do so, they would try to get us to tape messages which they could broadcast about our own government and how great communism was, or to write a letter to Ho Chi Minh saying that the treatment was really good and that the North Vietnamese were righteous and all this crazy stuff that we would refuse to do. Under heavy, heavy torture, mm. we found that we had to do something. So we used a ploy when they, we finally were forced to write something. We would put in slang and double meaning. The English language is so rich, as you know, that anyone with a modicum of English fluency would recognize that if they used that, it would be counterproductive because it was obviously forced. But they went ahead and continued doing that off and on during our entire time we were over there. You were tortured for almost eight years, unbelievable fashion. At one point, the North Vietnamese interrogators gave you a way out. They gave you an opportunity to go home. Why did you refuse their offer? <laughs> it was against the code of conduct. <laughs> Tell our listeners what the offer was and how it was against the code of conduct. The code of conduct says you will not except parole. We believed that the Code of Conduct was there to help us and guide us to do what we were supposed to do as Air Force officers. 
And of course, as Air Force officers, we wanted to do what, everything that we could to uphold our service and our country, but they had different ideas about how we should act and react. And at one time, and this was early on in my captivity, probably within the first month, I had two or three interrogations and they were offering me a chance to go home early. They said that Ho Chi Minh himself had really taken up my cause and would ensure that I got home safely. And I asked, well, what do I have to do to get this? They said, well, you'll have to write that your treatment is good and that you agree with the North Vietnamese and are against the criminal activities of your government. And I, of course, <laughs> there was no question. I refused. Pretty soon they dropped that subject because they found out that it just wouldn't fly. For you, Smitty, and for many of the guys that you were interred with, faith played a mighty role in your survival. Talk about what role played in your survival, and how did you practice your faith when you are separated from your colleagues? It became very, very important to us, particularly when we were being mistreated. It was nice to know that God was there and was with you and was listening and was hearing. We didn't expect any miracles, but it gave us great composure and freed our minds to know that someone, we were not alone. Mm. And we prayed for miracles to happen, but uh, they didn't happen the way we wanted them to. But by praying, we found that we did gain sort of miracles that were far beyond the things that day to day that we wanted to happen or not happen. So if you're, you're praying for the gates to open for you to go home, I would imagine would be a prayer. <laughs> that yeah. doesn't happen. So what are the miracles that are showing up then during this incredibly dark time? We found out that our faith was stronger. We were given hope that our resistance to the enemy would continue and we'd be able to do so. And uh, we knew that our we were stronger people. We were imbued with a, a knowledge that our faith was real and it was so meaningful to us to know that we were not alone and our prayers were being answered. And we were almost felt like we might be near giving up we found out we had renewed mm. strength to continue. Mm. Those kind of uh, increase in our faith and strength and a knowledge that we were not alone, all of that, those were things, gifts from our prayers, and we attribute them directly to God. In addition to that direct correlation back to God and the gifts that God's given you during that time, the, the gift to communicate when it was illegal and seemingly impossible to do so. Talk about the TAP Code. I know it's the name of your book, but it's also one of the great reasons why you are on this interview today. What What is the TAP Code and why did it matter? To begin with, I learned it quite by accident uh, at a one of our escape and evasion schools before I went overseas. It was not taught in any of the services, but I learned about it from one of my instructors. And when we were put together in that cell with four guys, 
to write those bogus letters, <laughs> one of which actually was delivered. <laughs> I taught the others the tap code that I had learned. In a week or so, we were put back in solitary confinement in adjacent cells, and we immediately started using the tap code, and it worked very well. It gave us strength and uh, unity, and we were able to compare what we were, the North Vietnamese were trying to get at in their interrogations and how we would react. Uh, it gave us a chance to find in our communication circle, however big it might be, who was the senior ranking officer. And we felt comfortable that with it because we would discuss ways that we would resist and things. But he would say, now, well, we've talked to several ways to respond to this question in interrogation. Let's all of us use yes. this approach. And so we had unity and togetherness and strength. It was great for our morale. It used a lot of our time communicating and clearing for guards so others could communicate. And we passed all kinds of information about our our families and poems and any kind of information we needed, mathematics or literature mm -hmm. or whatever. It kept us busy. It really made us a cohesive bunch of guys who trusted each other and worked together to make the best of our situation. Yeah, prayer services. When we were in solitary confinement, for instance, we kept track of the days. And Sunday morning, somebody, probably the SRO, senior ranking officer, would hit the wall real hard with his elbow, a big thump. And that was a signal that we had prepared for, for all of us to get down on our knees if we could. And at a minimum, say the Lord's Prayer in the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States. And we did that, and then we would continue with our own private prayers. And that was our Sunday church service, even though it <laughs> we were in solitary confinement and sometimes immobile. We had a church service and enjoyed it. It's so terrible and beautiful and redemptive and tragic. I, I, I get emotional even thinking about you guys on your knees in solitary confinement, in intense physical agony, starving, lonely, isolated, giving thanks and saying the Pledge of Allegiance. It's, uh, <laughs> it's overwhelming. And to also know that in that little jail cell with you was a 10 cup with your initials lightly pressed into it. Tell me why that 10 cup and those initials matter to you. They gave us that and we used it and they had to boil any water that they used for drinking. Everyone in North Vietnam knew that, and they did that, even for us. And sometimes they would bring in a small porcelain-covered little container with water in it, and we would pour that, that from the container into uh, each of us had a cup. But it was um, sometimes the water was quite hot, mm. and the little metal ear on the cup was uncomfortable and I found a piece of twine uh, someplace on the floor or outside when they dumped my bucket or something and anyway I wrapped the little ear metal ear with that so 
to uh, it would be a little more comfortable and not burn my fingers. And that cup right now resides in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., in the American history portion of it. Deservedly so. My friends, we're going to speed up the tape just a little bit to uh, capture eight years during one podcast and then a lifetime that follows afterwards. February of 1973, finally, eight years almost in, things finally begin to change. I'm curious, what is it like when you are no longer in that cell, no longer requiring that 10 cup or that code tap to communicate, but you are now on a transport plane heading toward Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. What What is the emotion for you like, Smitty? When we were released, the North Vietnamese lived up to their agreement that they had come to in Paris, and we were notified ahead of time in writing, posted in the courtyard, that we were to be released and given a time frame, a rough time frame. But at any rate, we became stoic. We would not, we were going to be American POWs and hated the North Vietnamese, not hated them, but the treatment we had received from them. And we would not act like they were doing us any kind of favor because we figured that we should not be there. We should have been released long ago. And so even when we went out to the airport and there was a beautiful big C-141 that was going to take us to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, when we walked up to the table, we marched up there to salute an American officer and be escorted out to the airplane. And they must have thought we were almost like mummies because we were expressionless. We did not want the North Vietnamese to think that we forgave them or were happy with them in any way. And it wasn't until the airplane finally got off the ground and we felt the wheels thumping the wells that we really let it go and didn't (laughs) scream and yell. Smitty, what is that joy like when you are on a transport plane and the door has shut, you are airborne, you are off the ground, you're leaving in enemy territory heading home. What's that joy like in that that plane at that point? A lot of it was they had a bunch of really good-looking nurses on board. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that helps. That that does help. Perfect. We, we like the scenery. <laughs> Louise is still listening, Smitty. I don't know if you know that. You've you've been married sixty years. You need to be careful when you're sharing things like this. I'm glad he's totally normal. <laughs> so, rather than me asking Smitty, why don't I lean back on you, Louise, for a more honest answer? When you first hear after eight years, I like I, I just want our listeners to think back to where you were eight years ago. And then you imagine a best friend whose voice you have not heard in eight years. And now here's your day to hear it again. After eight years of not hearing your husband's voice, after eight years of wondering, would you ever hear it again? What is it like to hear that voice? Oh, you know, the, the funny thing was, his, his, I kept getting phone calls. And finally, a, a voice comes on that's familiar to me. And it was Rudy Durbano, an old friend. And I, I said, Rudy, I love you, but I can't talk to you now. And you said, don't hang up. I've got him right here. Mm. And in that moment, I thought, oh, dear Lord, just let him say something that's really familiar to both of us. 
<laughs> and one time when we were dating, he'd introduced me as Jane. <laughs> and I said, well, Tarzan. <laughs> so when he picks up the phone, he says, hi, Jane, this is Tarzan. Mm. And it was pure music. <laughs> it was wonderful. Just absolutely wonderful. And it was like, you know, we hadn't missed a beat in all those years. It was great. Louise, in, in Hollywood, the story ends now, and the, the director's <laughs> name comes across the screen, and the actors and everything else. In real life, in some regards, the story begins right now. Absolutely. How difficult was it for a couple that had not laid eyes on each other or held hands or anything else in eight years to come back together as a couple? Eight years of you both endured your own isolation and torture. What is it like to come back together as a couple after that? You know, it. It never, we never, ever missed a beat. We were together again, and that was it. We we never missed a single beat, honestly, John. You, you make it sound too easy. I mean, for some of us, when uh, when our date doesn't show for us on a Friday night, we, we can't let that pain go for the Saturday morning. <laughs> this is eight years. When you wait eight years, you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> What a, what a beautiful story. You mentioned earlier, Colonel Smitty, that we did not want to forgive them. We, we didn't want them to see that we forgave them. You've had not only eight years to reflect on that now, but decades. How do you, that, that topic of forgiveness, what, what does that mean to you today? Well, we really could forgive the uh, young men who were torturing us there, except for a few who enjoyed it. Most of them were just young soldiers doing exactly what they were told to do by their officers. Some of them really enjoyed it, but some of them showed even showed uh, a little bit of compassion once in a while. And we knew that they had been indoctrinated since birth, really, and their parents with the communist ideology and uh, obedience to the their communist authorities and uh, that they were responsible for the ideology that they had. Mm. It was taught to them from the earliest ages and they just were there and following through with it. The book that you have written is called Tap Code, the epic survival tale of a Vietnam veteran POW and the secret code that changed everything. I think it could have almost easily has been called Love Story. And it, it's a story between six decades of love between a couple that choose joy in spite of every single thing they face along the way. I, I, it's one of the most beautiful love stories with the military angle I have ever read, and I really appreciate you both for letting us read it. Well, we are both, we know that we are so blessed and our lives have been so full and meaningful and our family is, is so wonderful. Uh, that little space way back 46 years ago, those little eight years are just a speck back there. Yeah. They don't bother us one iota. Louise, what would you say to someone who today feels like they are the one isolated? They're the one in that prison cell. They're the one without that relationship that they longed for. They're dealing with a health crisis. For, for those who feel that they are at the end of their journey today, what, what, what advice might you give someone like that? You know, I had a wonderful friend in Okinawa who told me at that time, 
Please, you will never be tested beyond your power to endure. That's as true today as it was then. And I love her and I bless her all the time because she was right. Uh, I became an oncology nurse at age 50. And many is the time when I sat and held my patient's hand as they were about to slip away. They blessed me much more than I ever blessed them because they had that faith and that deep belief that that they had had a good life. And I believe that is sincerely, you know, this is just one phase of life and you go on to another one. And, and I believe that today, John, and it sounds like you and your wife have passed all those tests too. And God bless you as well. Mm. You have totally made our conversation come to life with your heart and your spirit and the love that you share with one another. All of our guests are asked seven questions as we wrap up our time together. We call them the Live Inspired Seven. They're typically asked of only one individual, but today we get to party with two individuals. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take turns going back and forth between the two of you. And Louise, I'll begin with you first. What is the best book you've ever read? Probably the Bible, I would say. <laughs> But there are many books, and we have a friend here in Tupelo called J.J. Jasper, and he and his wife are beautiful spirits, and they lost a son, and reading his book was probably one of the most recent books that I have read that blessed my heart. I mean, he just, he had a magnificent book. If you remember, tell me what the name of the book is, and what was the main lesson that you drew from it? Losing Cooper. Losing Cooper, and and, uh, how did it touch your, your heart? Well, going through losing their son, who was so precious to them, and how they coped and came through it together, because it was was a tragic accident, and they just grew spiritually and in their love for each other and their whole family, Mm. and it how they went through the the whole thing together, and they did it beautifully and graciously. Terrible tragedy, and they. But they they grew together as a whole family, and particularly as a couple. Beautiful. Uh, Colonel Smitty, what's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? (laughs) Well, I have always been inquisitive, optimistic, and a (laughs) risk-taker. But I also was raised in the Catholic Church and had a deep uh, abiding love of God and a wonderful childhood and wonderful parents. So that's all I can think of, really. Well, I think that that inquisitive joy, risk-taking faith that the little boy had growing up is seated across from me today now as a more wise, seasoned man. Louise, if your home caught fire and all living things, those are your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your friends, your animals, all those things are out, and you have an opportunity to race in and grab one item, what is the one item, the one thing that you would grab? Well, actually, there'd be four items. The letter from Smitty, (laughs) and I have three pastel portraits of our children at the beach when they were little and Smitty was gone. I'd have to grab all four of those things. I would have kicked Smitty out the door already. (laughs) (laughs) Your hands are full, but the pastel paintings in the letter have made it out safely. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. Smitty, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, 
Who would you want to spend your day talking with? Oh, gosh, there are so many. Probably with Louise, and I talk with her every day. (laughs) (laughs) But we really do discuss people and our kids and things that are happening and enjoy doing so with each other. So this couple that has been together six decades, dating before that, separated for eight years, and yet still on that bench next to you, anyone in the entire world throughout the pages of history during the world, you want Louise next to you. That is correct. It's beautiful. Well, remember, John, he has to live with me too. So well, that's yeah. right. You're, you're looking over his shoulder. I know how this relationship goes. <laughs> Louise, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think that one from Shirley Meyerhold. Yeah. You will never be tried beyond your power to endure. That's been so true, always. Smitty Harris, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self? I would make every decision that I made from when I was 20 years old on, I'd probably make the same decisions again because uh, I had no idea where all that would lead. Mm. But uh, indeed, I've had a blessed career, wonderful assignments that I enjoyed. I enjoy retirement. I've just had a blessed and wonderful life. Smitty, if, if you can look back on your career and see it as being blessed and charmed, it inspires me to look back on traffic outside or delays the airport and remind myself how blessed and charmed my life is as well. So uh, my, my friends, we have a final question. I'll ask it for both of you and we'll begin with Louise. Louise, it has been said that all great people, and I'm on the interview with one right now, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That I am profoundly grateful for every single day. I have been truly blessed. And Smitty, the same question is going to come your way. Smitty Harris, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? I'm the most fortunate man that I know. I even still play a pretty good game of golf. (laughs) So my health is good. And my attitude towards life and God are both good. So that's a little more than a sentence, but anyway. Up in Missouri, man, we just use commas. So I I think that is absolutely one sentence, and it's a beautiful one, profoundly blessed. Smitty and Louise, I want to thank you for being examples of love, of forgiveness, of waiting. of fighting through, of seeing the silver lining and living into that joy every single day of your lives. It is it is an example to me, to my wife, to our family, and now to our listeners. Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure talking with you this yes, morning. Yes, it has. Thank you so much. My friends, that is the unbelievably powerful and loving couple of Smitty and Louise Harris. I want to thank them for being part of our podcast. I want to thank them for writing the book, I want to thank them for tuning in today with us, and I want to thank each of you for tuning in as well. I am John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspired podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, 
or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.